Jordan related. I read this um, really insane interview between uh, Ben Lerner and Cyrus Consul from like 2012, who are like basically like you know hoity-toity poet intellectual types. But, Ooh, poetry. <laughs> no, I love poetry. We but, love poetry um, on but, this podcast. But one of them was like talking about one of them was talking about how. Um, one of them was talking about how there was these social scientists in the 70s who came up with this theory that things like the sound of rain or waves crashing or like the view of a mountain or forest like hasn't changed for like millions of years. And so that it's now integrated into our like our evolution. And so we seek out these places and these sounds because they're like sort of comfort- comforting, but there actually isn't like like language tends to sort of fail us when we try to describe like why we like the sound of like waves crashing or like the sound of like rain hitting. And so then in the form of poetry, this guy in the form of poetry, these guys were saying that you could extend that into things like love. And so when somebody writes like a sonnet, a love sonnet, it's actually, it's actually a representation not of like love and how love feels but of earlier sonnets and ways in which the english language has described love so it's just like building upon like basically ideas and wordplay describing love and not actually describing the thing because this thing itself is actually pretty indescribable when it comes to like language I don't know. It was kind of cool. It was interesting. It was like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox kind of idea, you know? That makes a lot of sense if you feel like there's not a feedback loop, it seems to me. Like, that would be totally right if the what, how people, and maybe this is like a poetry problem and not like a pop yeah. song problem, where in poetry, because sonnets are so at this point fairly removed from many people's experiences right. of love like it doesn't right. feed back but i do feel like many people's experiences of love are integrally connected to the ways that love is described either lyrically or musically in pop songs so there is this feedback loop where i don't know if that distance exists in certain kinds of popular format yeah no i completely agree with what you're saying and i don't think it's totally at odds with this idea in which i just described (laughs) that i know very little about i just kind of read about it in an interview but i completely agree but i would say even just like ideas and the way in which we talk about things like love or other subjects how they're depicted in popular culture and how they're depicted in like pop music i think i think i think there's definitely a feedback loop where people start to probably subconsciously like integrate that into their ideas of like what love is or what a relationship should be. And you can extend that, you know, into politics or, you know, different social issues like, you know, class or gender issues or whatever. Um, For sure. I think that's definitely there. Uh, Paul Gilroy has this absolutely amazing essay that I I read years ago and I kept thinking about where he talks about, rock and roll in the 50s and cars yeah and the ways yeah that like specifically for black drivers cars could serve as a certain like an equal driving space because everyone has to follow the same laws and that they're self-contained and that there's this like poetics of cars and the vision of freedom and that those things then really do feed all back into each other yeah, no, it's in Darker Than Blue, yeah. his book. And it and it's and I can yeah, I I can elucidate on that a little bit. I think what he was talking about uh link that to the the black the black American experience, which has constantly been like in tension obviously with the history of slavery like with freedom. And so the idea of like owning being a car owner and I like one thing having your own car that's yours, but then the ability for it to like take you literally anywhere you want to go as long as you got gas in the tank. Like, that's what he was kind of saying, how that plays a role where it kind of offers, like, this, you know, freedom within the context of, like, society. And and that's why songs like Maybelline, which are about freedom and love right. in the form of an automobile, why that technology is also important to remember that, like, not just are cars increasingly accessible in the 50s, but the interstate system is getting built. So the idea that you could just get on a smooth road and drive to a new city without, like, 
having to stop at a million little towns that are terrifying, that's new. That's like totally new. Uh, this is probably a good time as any to remind you that you're listening to Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird and I'm with Sam Backer and we are a podcast about music and capitalism. Going back to like the feedback loop and representations of ideas of like love and different things. Uh, I'm curious, like, do you think it extends to topics of like materialism, like clothes and cars and and things like that, like that we kind of hear more of in today's hip hop? Because we we actually planned to start this episode or kind of talking about future. But uh, (laughs) when I was kind of like going through his lyrics and stuff like that, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are before I kind of jump into that, because he's definitely kind of, you know, his lyrically, his lane is definitely, you know, had it hard spent a lot of time at the trap spot, like got out of it through my rap. Now I got like, you know, $10,000 rings on my fingers. You know, that's kind of like his like lyrical lane. And I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, is could you extend these ideas that we were discussing with Gilroy? Could you extend that into like these sort of like ideas of like freedom? Like instead of like owning the car, the car ownership, like having like economic freedom? Yeah, I mean, there's some really great work out there about the complexities of black capitalism and the ways in which certain forms of like black capitalism especially forms that got a lot of like um both like licit and illicit that got like a lot of like attention and like rhetorical push um in the 80s and 90s um and i've got some some friends uh, and colleagues who like know a lot more about this than i do shouts to jess levy who is writing a book about this. Um, cool. I'm going to have, have them on at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of feel two kind of ways about something like Future, right? Like, at one level, some of this is, like, like the bad man trope in, uh, a vari- in like, a black American music as this kind of, like, rebellious trickster, badder than bad. Like, you're going to call me bad, so we're going to be badder than that, and we're going to get freedom through both like adopting and undercutting a lot of these like racist stereotypes is like a longstanding trope. And so I think that a lot of in some of hip hop, that's, that feels like that's one way to understand that. I'm not saying it's like a direct line. I mean, I don't know how much the lyrical content versus the sonic content of future, like where that balance lies. To me, like, the pleasure of future is, like, he sounds like the voice of God. Like, this almost, like, um, like Prince Farai-esque vocal tone with these amazing effects. And then just, it's just this all-encompassing, like, flow vibe. Just think about, like, that tape he did with Drake, right? That that quote-unquote mixtape. Where, like, Drake, I'm a big Drake fan, and, like, Drake, like, you hear the lyrics, and, like, Drake like enunciates very clearly and you can understand all the lyrics that Drake wants you to understand and then future and it's just this like noise rock wall of sound he's the my he's the he's the Jesus and Mary chain of rap <laughs> wow I love that I love that and so I'm not sure for me the more interesting thing almost about future is when he talks about being fucked up um where he talks about drug use in a way that is in the songs like a badge of pride I think he was very influential in adding that lyrical strand where previously I feel like in hip hop you could be really high and that would be cool but like you were not on like promethazine that wasn't like super cool in 1997 and somehow future really futures move into that drug culture in ways that he said he regrets right like he there's like a heartbreaking interview with him about um juice world where juice world's like I lived those lyrics Maybe this kind of undercuts exactly what I'm saying. Juice World's like, I lived to those drug lyrics and they interviewed Future after Juice World's passing and Future was like, man, that's just some shit I said in the studio. I feel like extremely guilty <laughs> that yeah, this was an yeah. example for this young kid who had so much talent. Yeah. The original reason why I wanted to bring him up was that he is his new album, he has 12 songs in the top 100 and today we were actually going to be talking about streaming and some and some streaming controversies in relation to the charts quote unquote but maybe sticking with future for a while what do you think about the lyrical content yeah sticking with future for a minute i'm gonna pass it to simon reynolds here uh, who said that his lyrics equally depict a treadmill grind of emotional sex and numbing drugs a lifestyle of triumphs and material splendor that feels strangely desolate 
And I think that there definitely is this sort of what you're talking about, the talking about the drug use or maybe like the materialism of it, but like mixed with that sort of gritty, interesting use of auto-tune that was kind of going the other direction that T-Pain went, I think kind of creates this like mood, you know? And the mood is like, pain and emptiness and futures even said that he said like my music that's pain i come from pain so you're going to hear it in my music but it's not this like you know angry pain it's like a well as simon reynolds says in this article i I keep i keep referencing and maybe i can like post in the description is he kind of considers like future blues for like the 21st century and i think that that so i think that 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 really i mean like if you look at future's lyrics just like as is like like it's not super deep or anything but it's like come i think it comes from this like comes from stories you know and he like has a lane you know and i mean like i think that like these elements of like bragging or whatever about you know his material possessions or his ability you know to have come out of you know the trap and be able to like become like a major successful rapper into age he's you know he's 36 years old which was really surprising you know i think that that is a story of sorts that like really kind of like resonates in a sense like and way more than say i can't help but when i think about rappers in their like late 30s and 40s like who to compare it to and i can't help but like kind of compare him to like jay-z who's kind of like this like neoliberal cornball entertainer with a capital E. I mean, at least in the second half of his career where like everything needs to be like a big performance. And like, he's all like being about being the CEO and like starting businesses and like, you know, like breaking down the silos of the music industry and like going into other, you know, going into other industries and like kind of almost like it has to, I mean, while like futures, like kind of think more like in that like artist lane where, he just like grind because he was like passionate about it and that happened to like get him out of like where he is now and almost sort of like a romanticized sort of cliche way. But I think that that feels so much that resonates more, I think. I also think it's interesting if we think about like lyrical tropes in this music, thinking about future versus someone like, say, Biggie, right? Um, where they're both describing like hustling drug dealing, um, money and cars. But and I, I could be wrong here, but it feels like Biggie talks about community. Like it's Biggie and his boys all the time in the songs. Um, not just like features, but he's often describing like himself as being fundamentally situated within a community. And it seems like future part of future's desolation is that like he's heartbreakingly alone. Like, he has all this stuff, and he doesn't... Like, I don't... I, I can't think of future songs where it's, like, me and my boys. But yeah, maybe no, I, I would partially agree with that. I don't think that's, like, totally his lane. I mean, I, I definitely agree with the part where, like, I'm, like, alone with hearing my stuff. And, like, you know, like, maybe, you know, all these possessions only bring like a certain amount of happiness you know i mean just i mean future is just like such an enjoyable persona like i you know as 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 an artist as a rapper at least i at least for me you know because i mean you know he's had lyrics like that are you know i feel the pain of my enemies and you know that could go either way you know it could be like like a little bit of bragging or it could be like he legitimately feels sorry for his like enemies and then when you like pair it with his like gritty weird spaced out ambient like strange like what do you call it like voice of god like auto-tune you can't help but like there's like a real emotional depth especially also when in interviews he's like saying that like, his music is pain and i think that you know just bringing it full circle like the fact that he's doing something that still resonates and sticking in his lane at 36 and not like trying to like go off on or at least not like yeah right he's probably he's still an entrepreneur he's still i'm sure like divesting his money into like other businesses but he's not like doing it on such like a like a like a public scale where he kind of just has like very much like sort of like remained sort of the same for the last like six seven years and i don't really foresee him like really moving out of that lane and it's like it works and it show it it's one way it maybe showcases that it works is that he has 12 songs off his new album in the top 100 
and I think he has something like the top, like he's like fourth on like the most singles in the top 100, like ever, like since it started or something, which is just really surprising. Um, Cause I don't feel like he's like out there as much as like say a Jay-Z or like a Drake in like the public eye. But then again, the question is, and like, this is what we're also going to talk about. Like is, are the charts even indicative of anything? Like, yo, real talk, Sam, who gives a fuck about the charts? I mean, it turns out everyone gives a fuck about the charts. I just want to go. Who's everyone? I don't give a fuck about the charts. <laughs> Yo, here's the one thing, though. Um, Future has a net worth of $13 million. Between 13 and not 40. That much. That's not that much. Jay-Z's right. in a couple that's worth a billion dollars. That's right. a huge wealth difference. And I'm just saying... I think that... It- that's well, I, I'm going to back up. No, no, no. I, no I'm going to interrupt you because I think that before you make your point, I'm going to say that I think that Eve, that like only further supports my point because like it's not like Future couldn't go and divest his money and make more money on top of money. That's what rich people do. But like for whatever reason, he hasn't and he's continued to just be a rapper for the most part. There, there, there's another there's another way to do this, though, which is that the music industry is fucked. Mm that an artist of future success, if future was as successful in the 80s as future has been over the last decade, future would have more than $13 million or $40 million. I, I'm getting different reports. Whereas sure, sure. someone like, you know, um, Drake's net worth is estimated at $180 million. That's a four times, 400% more more than 400 percent more than the most like uh uh um ambitious the largest estimation of futures net worth and again jay-z i mean just saying that there's like part of this is that the game is stacked such that as much as those moves seem corny on our side jay-z being the ceo of a company actually made jay-z incorporated a shit ton of money I oh think. i'm not de- i'm not no i'm not denying that like jay-z is a better capitalist than future i mean but from like a fan point from an artist point from comparing the two there's something i really appreciate about future and i feel like that's why he's 36 and he's got 12 songs in the top 100 off his new album and like there's nothing that seems like he's gonna slow down and there's nothing that like indicates that he's gonna pivot either he's gonna ride this trap thing out until it ends <laughs> and then he will have his like meager 40 million to like live the rest of his life on that then he can like you know i don't know like divest into stocks with uh you know 10 cent or something yeah i don't know i don't know i think future deserves more money Anyways, yeah, but I want to like I'm curious. Like so he's got 12 songs in the top 100 and that's kind of what we're what we're going to be talking about today is a controversy that recently arose around the Billboard charts and then I think just sort of deconstructing and discussing what the fuck are the charts. So Sam, you want to tell us about this controversy that went down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So lay down. Pivoting away pivoting away from future who is a beloved person who brings people joy. We're going to talk about Takashi 69, a terrible person who doesn't make great music and like I cannot like is a convicted sex felon. Like gang affiliations aside, like made a video of having sex with a 13-year-old. Like he's not a good person. He's got some work to do on himself sure <laughs> whatever like fuck fuck takashi 69 but what's crazy is that he started a controversy um this past week and as much as it is weird to say takashi 69 has a point okay so takashi 69 he's been in prison for uh, a whole, and this is not, he compared himself to Meek Mills, who after one drug charge and 10 years in probation went back to prison. Takashi 69 was in, deeply involved with violent gang-related activities and also didn't serve do any of the community service for his sex crime. So I don't believe anyone should necessarily be in jail, but like Takashi 69, not a good person. Comes out of prison, releases a new independent release. It's on, uh, I believe, Scumboy Records. Fitting, fitting. Releases a new song, greatly anticipated. Um, the track is Gooba. 
I just want to get the specifically. Yeah, scum. It's scum gang recordings. Gooba. All right. All right. Um. So. He this is his big moment back. In some ways, he's his career was written off after early success. His big moment back. Um, he releases a huge record. Um, and it does numbers. It does massive numbers worldwide. But it doesn't make number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. And it is stopped by, held at number three, by a track um, featuring reigning superstars Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, um, a song called Stuck With You. So here's the deal. He says that levels accusations that there is major um, discrepancies and illegal like fraud-like activities that is leading to him being kept off of number one of the Billboard charts. In specific, he accuses Grande and Bieber of purchasing 40,000 physical units with seven credit cards. I want the world to know that Billboard is a lie. You can buy number ones on billboard i want that to register oh shady and in response billboard which has not really been that forthcoming about how things are decided on the charts actually releases for reasons like i do not understand releases like numbers and data kind of explaining how the charts were decided this week and how are they decided because I read that article and it sounded like a bunch of PR bullshit and made no sense to me. So, so maybe you can elucidate. The Billboard Hot 100 charts. So he, he, here's the numbers that go into it that they release. No one sells any records. So like there's like 15 records sold. <laughs> Takashi has something like 55.3 million US streams, which is a ridiculous number of streams to have in a week for a song for um that's both spotify and youtube that's a lot um bieber and grande have 25 million streams so like 50 percent of the streams 26 million or something like that uh radio airplay audience members and then like more uh some uh smattering record sales like a hundred thousand record sales or something like that um so according to Billboard, the way that Billboard is doing this thing, right? You kind of add them all up and they say that no, in fact, Grande and Bieber did not themselves purchase. They didn't pull an Eric Trump and just purchase a whole bunch of their own books to get on the top of the Amazon charts. Uh, they This was like fan club stuff. Okay. So it seems like from Billboard's perspective, things are settled. And I'm sitting here looking like, what the hell is 25 million radio plays? Saxon, what is 25 million radio plays? Well, does that mean that's how many times the song has been played on the radio? No, actually. Sorry. I just set you up. <laughs> no, yeah. No, no. It's, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know. I like, and, I, and, and yeah, I, 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 I want to know because what the hell does it mean? So, and why is it worth more than streams? Not to get it, ahead. It's not you. it's not worth more than streams necessarily, but there's enough numbers that it like 25 million streams, 28 million radio plays. If you add them together the way they are, it mm -hmm. does add up to a bigger number than 56 million. But the thing is that radio plays are a whole other complicated thing. That is the estimated radio audience of this track. In radio stations across the U.S. How do, Okay. Did you dive into how they estimated that? Which is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dived in. Because I'm like, oh, so we are now making a fruit basket. Because oh, what we yeah, have here explain. are apples and oranges. <laughs> yeah, so the Hot 100 chart has always counted a whole bunch of different mm -hmm. things. It's been around in some form uh, since the like 40s or some shit like that. Originally, there was like a jukebox. Cap Calloway, number one hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jukeboxes across America. <laughs> playing, spinning the hot new Cab Calloway. <laughs> right. I'm Casey Kasem. <laughs> right, exactly. So originally it had jukeboxes, uh, which turned out mostly were run by the mob. Uh, whole other story. The 
<laughs> to, to be to be discussed on another episode of Money for Nothing. The mob. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Single sales, radio plays, um, and it's evolved over the years, right? Clearly, jukeboxes are now a negligible impact on American listening habits. Uh, so are record sales. Like, not people don't really buy CDs anymore. If you shocker, if you haven't noticed, people no longer buy CDs. I'm not even sure I know where I could buy a CD. I mean, outside of like Amazon, and I don't even know if I probably could get on one on Amazon. But like, do you, like just side note, like footnote, like, do you know where you could go, like a physical, like brick and mortar space, to buy a CD right now? Oh, yeah, I know where. I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Oh, I'm going to say Downtown Music Gallery. Oh, uh, they have stuff CDs. Yo, shouts to Downtown Music Gallery, keeping the avant-garde jazz scene afloat. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I was going to say something like those, those like dance hall, soca, oh, slash, yeah. but, that's, but even then it's like, that might be a burn CD, but anyways. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't think, I don't think that the artists are getting money from those. No, definitely not. Uh no, uh my my father is the person purchasing CDs still. <laughs> so so Soka mixtapes? Uh no, mostly mosaic jazz box sets. Oh okay, all right, all right. Okay. It's, it's its own thing. Um, okay, just later on another all. episode where we cover mosaic <laughs> jazz box sets with Sam Backer's dad. <laughs> actually, dad's pretty cool. Actually, we should we side note we should we shouldn't throw shade because the guy was part of the downtown scene and like a, a jazz man himself. But anyways, moving he, on with the story. His problem is he's locked in. He's purchased every single one so far, so he's got like oh. dreams of completism. Yeah, co- co- yeah, yeah, completist. <laughs> he's the, locked the in. There's dreams. nothing you could do. Right, right, right. Okay. Anyway, anyway yeah. um, cutting all. <laughs> no, keeping all this. <laughs> So, the charts evolved mm-hmm. over the years. I think 2013, they um, start incorporating digital downloads, then YouTube plays, which is actually kind of wild. In 2013? Yeah. Okay. But YouTube plays... I mean, yeah, YouTube, YouTube plays, plays are strictly like from like the label posting it, right? No, oh. that's what's interesting. So if I like no. post like my favorite Beach House song with like clips of like a Wes Anderson film, they would count that. Yeah, yeah. If you've got like <laughs> that, it, that a picture exists, by the way, I don't of know why. like a, a Beach House album with like a picture of the sky and then a picture of the reflection of the sky oh, superimposed over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, why are you throwing shade at me? Just because I do that. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, Ch- Saxon Baird, actually a- an excellent photographer. Check out his work. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> no, I really like this, but I am throwing shade. Right. Um, anyway, yeah. So uh, apparently they actually, in like Billboard, which again is like a for-profit company, mm-hmm. apparently made that change. So it's anything that's over a certain period of time. I think it's like 45 seconds of the clip counts for plays. Okay. They Apparently they made the change during that period of time when Harlem Shake was everywhere and everyone was making dance like versions of it so bauer went from like a viral video to the number one on the billboard charts the second they made that change okay so it's changed over time right what's incorporated in this charts what's not incorporated in this charts but what's interesting though is that given its importance in american society is again that apples and oranges nature of it right mm-hmm. because streams are not a perfect democratic act right. right like clearly things like rap caviar um and playlist inclusion can dramatically rap caviar the top hip-hop playlist on spotify inclusion in that can radically change the number of streams you get because people just listen through it same with hot country the whatever the rarely changing dance hall playlist is so it's not like a perfect democracy but there is a sense that people are choosing to listen to that music that's not true at all with radio and i guess to a certain extent like it's 1965 and your local DJ is a figure in the community uh-huh. where he's playing saw cops. He's uh, going out and meeting, greeting. He's got listeners calling in. He's playing stuff to a community. While there's still a level of decision making, I mean, clearly payola has always existed in the radio industry, especially in the um, late 50s, early 60s. Um, 
there is like a level of like community relationship there. Mm-hmm. That is no longer true. Why is that? Radio. So you have major um, Clinton era deregulation bills that change how many stations companies can own um, and how many in a market they can own. And so what you get is the rise of these extremely centralized radio networks, the most famous being iHeart Radio or iHeart Media. Heard of it. Uh, formerly Clear Channel, uh, they just were like, one day they were like, everyone hates us. What can we do? What if we change our name to like literally a Care Bear? Care Bears Countdown. Four, three, two, one. Who's that coming? And then stickers. people will be heart media. Like, because who doesn't heart media? <laughs> I don't heart a fucking thing, Sam. I love or I like or I dislike or I hate, but I don't fucking lo- heart a goddamn thing. <laughs> Just to be clear, <laughs> where I stand in this. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't get it twisted. No harding, no harding on, this on this show. And either kind of forced metaphors right, exactly. or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, the we've got this super centralized radio. Uh-huh. Um, and we have still semi-independence all over. And, and the point is that despite being officially illegal... Shocker, Paola, alive and well. That's right. 2020, the music you're being you're listening to, your favorite tracks, are being paid to be played on the radio. But how? How is it not illegal? So, so it's unclear if it's not illegal. I mean, so the thing about Paola is that I'm actually pro Paola. <laughs> hey, just real quick, real, real, real quick. I mean, just a quick definition of Paola for maybe for people who aren't as familiar with it. Yo, so pay. Payola is pay-to-play at the most basic level. The term comes from the late 50s, early 60s, um, when there's a major congressional investigation into rock and roll radio DJs. Real talk, this is like the major labels at the time being like, why are they playing this black music to our teenagers? Let's say that they're corrupt and the devil. It was incredibly rampant, so you do get all these things where like white DJs who have not a musical bone in their body are like credited as like co-writers with uh, partial copyright and partial publishing of major black musicians songs, um, which is terrible and like unacceptable, but was the way that business was done. I mean, and really this is, this goes back to the very beginning of popular music because the problem is that unless you hear a pop song, you won't like the pop song. So the problem has always been, you got to get people to hear a song so they'll like the song, so they'll buy the song. And that first step of getting people to hear the song means that there's going to be gatekeepers. And sometimes if you slip the gatekeeper a 20 or a 40, or in the case of today, a Amex gift card or a steak dinner, it helps. So what's happening now in radio, and this is what I learned about. Um, and this is what Takashi's sign is apparently right about is it kind of right about so basically is remember elliot spitzer oh yes elliot spitzer in the past few days i've begun to atone for my private failings with my wife soda my children and my entire family former governor of new york who i believe uh had to step down because of cheating on his wife with prostitutes after prosecuting people for sleeping with prostitutes right don't awesome yeah yeah. don't make your name cracking down on john's and then go and be a john also uh elliot spitzer a man before his time like what a bummer to get busted for this kind of like uh uh, morality scandal in the pre-trump era and you were like man if i just waited a decade longer i could have just brazened that thing out with the strength of partisanship behind no, me. No, because, no, because he's a Democrat, and the Democrats still want to ride that out. They, they still, you know, like the whole, you know, they go low, we go high, and lose an election. So, Spitzer, before he was disgraced, and I think before he was governor, when he was still attorney general of the state of New York, really cracked down on a whole bunch of payola, which was really rampant in the late 90s, early 2000s. This thing goes in... Yeah, like early 2000s, Yeah, this right? thing yeah. goes in cycles. There's this great book called um, 
I forget what it's called, but it's about Paola in the record industry. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. And every chapter is just a quote from someone being like, I'm appalled that someone is paying to play records. And it's like, Paola in the 20s. And it's like, I cannot believe that this evil is not stamped out. Paola in the 40s. And it's just every 20 years. And so it's back. And it's been 15 years. There's money in the music industry again. So people are getting loose. Um, it is no longer legal to pay for record labels to pay radio DJs or radio stations directly for plays. Directly. There's the keyword there. <laughs> so now we have independent promoters. And what's an independent, independent promoter? promoters? Independent promoters are just good guys and gals who really have a good ear for a hit um, and they make talk to a radio station say like i've got a good ear for a hit um let's discuss our musical tastes over a steak dinner or a vacation that i'll pay or for. literally fistfuls of mx gift cards <laughs> i wonder how much money laundering happens through those prepaid mx gift cards well like probably a ton well in doing some of the research for this episode there was a quote where it was being written off like receipts were being written off as like, you know, a hundred t-shirts, like 14 like pallets of like water bottles. And then the guy at the radio station who went unnamed being like, I never saw any t-shirts or water bottles. So, I mean, in a weird that that is in a sense money laundering. Yeah. Oh no, it's money laundering. It's just paying, it's paying money illegally directly to stations. And in response, these independent promoters um, go to labels and are like, if you want a song placed in rotation on this station, you have to pay me pay me X amount of money, thousands of dollars, and I'll tell them. Because you can pay me money, you're not paying the radio station anything, and then I'm just a, a, a guy with good taste who could talk to the radio station and help you get in. So those are independent promoters, which is Jess Paola under a new name. Currently, apparently, there's a like a bidding war in many ways that this is getting increasingly prevalent and increasingly expensive. There's a pretty great expose in Rolling Stone, like a, a lengthy expose in Rolling Stone from about a year ago about this. I would imagine partially because there are fewer radio stations where you can get a new song played. And this kind of gets back to the charts in a weird way, because a lot of these spins that you're buying are actually happening really late at night when no one's listening. But... They count for like most added new songs charts. And then if you buy some radio play, you can go to other stations and be like, I got played on a major hip hop station in XYZ. You should, you know, and we were the most added new song in America. You should put us in your rotation and then that goes back to the charts and then you appear at like number 13 on the charts and then all of a sudden like you're on your way to possibly being the next pop star yeah except and this is where we get back to ariana and justin because they're not getting pays for plays on these stations because they don't have to and that's, I think, the, the real thing, is that as corrupt as Paola is, in some ways, it's much less corrupt because, like, anyone with the money can pay to get on these radio stations at some level than the kinds of corporate synchronizations that are increasingly dominating large chunks of the music industry. So, yeah, explain that for me real quick iHeartMedia owns hundreds of major stations across the country. It's a major corporation. There are three major record labels left. They all have, at varying levels of specificity, corporate relationships with iHeartMedia. The most explicit, actually, is Warner Brothers, where they cut a deal with iHeartMedia where... Basically, um, yeah, they like a specific explicit relationship where Warner Brothers would get certain kind of plays and iHeartMedia would pay less money for streaming Warner Brothers songs on iHeartMedia apps online and Warner Brothers artists would get special placement in 
new additions on iHeartMedia stations, and it's just like one big cozy family, especially considering that these are all, um, not not all, but uh, many of these are companies with interlocking ownership structures of various kinds. So certainly Clear Channel, so iHeartMedia and Live Nation are both, their large stakes, their stakes of both of them are owned by Liberty Media, which also owns the Braves, owns Formula One Racing, and is trying to buy an increasingly large stake of iHeartMedia. But they all have these relationships together. And the point is that that means that if you're a really major label artist, you just get added to these radio plays. And then you get whether or not the uh, the 25 million people who supposedly listened to this track that week wanted to listen to that track, they were forced to because they can just jam it in rotation from a single centralized decision-making operation, right? That the people at iHeartRadio can make a decision and change what's being played in hundreds of radios in major markets, hundreds of radio stations in major markets across the country, and just decide that the song is going to get X many millions of plays. And so actually... Tell me if I'm wrong here or not, but that's also further supported by the fact that a company like iHeartMedia basically has a very large portion of the pie of radios in this country, if not basically a monopoly. Yeah, absolutely. So they're basically already controlling what they what we want to listen to, but now you could, you know, with the addition of pay-to-play... <laughs> there's really is there any organic way in which like someone can get radio play now i mean i don't know that's a really that's a really good question i mean i mean the first the first thing i mean the first thing that i'm really lamenting here is just that the values and tastes of the economically privileged you know are bra- are are being broadcasted and controlled through these platforms and are now dictating like what we listen to on air and in the billboard charts however I can't help but ask also the question, like, who the fuck is listening to the radio? And I know that's like a very, that's a question that's coming from my very Brooklyn bubble where like not a lot of people I know like own a car. But I just, I'm I'm not convinced at like why this necessarily matters. Like, why do the charts matter? Like, who does that matter to? Like, if... Future got zero singles off of his new record. Would he then not? I'm just, I don't know. I guess I don't even, like, why Why does it matter? Yeah, no, I think it's a really, that's a really good question. In some ways, that's the question that this research brought me to in the end, right? Because what we're saying at this point is that Takashi 69 has 56 something, something like that, mid 50 million streams, which while in some ways a result of his status in the rap game, are also a result probably of people making decisions about playing that song or watching YouTube videos of that song. And that then Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande uh, are in some ways that decisions are being made by these big companies. But in a weird way, like they're just not, what's being measured somehow like collapses in your hands a little bit, right? Like what, like... I totally agree. I mean, I read the articles that like the billboard statement, it it didn't really make any sense to me, like how they differentiated and like weighted more heavily radio plays versus streams. I didn't understand that. I didn't like, I did not understand like how in the world they were make say, I, I didn't understand the language as to like why streams were weighted less than radio play. And it seemed to me... It's not even clear how they're weighted. I'm not positive that streams are weighted less as much as I am positive that, like, how people listen to the radio is different than how they listen to streams. (laughs) Yeah, which is, like, I don't know. It just seems... It seems like... Well, speaking of streams, let me ask you this. Like, is there a pay-to-play or has there been any sort of news to come out through like investigative reporting or otherwise that there's a pay-to-play scheme when it comes to getting on a spotify playlist because at least in the circles that i run you know tangentially or whatever it seems like curated playlists on spotify are more of a source of finding music 
for a lot of people I know than like what's being played on the radio. So is there like a is there a similar? So, I don't know. I have not heard anything specifically about pay to play with Spotify in the same way that it exists in the radio stations. But again, um, I don't think there needs to be. And right? Why is that? My understanding is that if you look at rap caviar, like the percentage of those artists that are owned, whose music is owned, who are signed to a major label or a major label subsidiary is tremendous. And Spotify is locked in like a tense but symbiotic relationship with the major labels because the major labels license Spotify their content. Without agreement from the major labels, Spotify doesn't get to stream all the music. And the second that, especially a company like Spotify, which is really doing well, but has real competitors and things like Apple Music, if like Warner Bros, I don't know why they would do this, but imagine Warner Bros pulls out of Spotify and all of a sudden, A, you don't even know which artists are Warner Bros artists, or rather Warner Music is that Warner Music artists, but all of a sudden you know that everything you want to listen to isn't on Spotify anymore, but it is on Apple Music. Something like that could like, right? So they have to have these very close relationships, which means that like uh, things happen that everyone wants to happen. Yeah, it's it seems to me right now like the only organic way in which an artist can find success through their music, and I'm using that very loosely, you know, depending on, you know, what... It, that artist defines as success, you know, everything from, you know, like an independent, like rock artist to a rapper who wants to be like on these charts. It seems like the only really organic way to do that is through a, is through a platform like SoundCloud, which, you know, I I was reading about Marshmallow for uh, a future episode that you will listen to about that. We were talking about like live music and how like marshmallow, this DJ who like wears a marshmallow mask or whatever her helmet, uh, you know, did a performance of Fortnite, And I was like, just curious about this, this artist and like how he got famous. And essentially he got famous by throwing a couple remixes and songs on SoundCloud and, you know, Skrillex heard one and it kind of went from there. And then he signed with red light media, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, and it's just hard for me to, believe that it was that simple just because it seems like there's so much content so i'm sure that maybe there's more details involved with that but even this artist we're talking about right now takashi 69 i mean i'm assuming he got his name primarily through maybe like some sort of scene politics but also like basically through soundcloud yeah soundcloud instagram youtube videos right which is kind of interesting to me and like I'm not saying and what's interesting to me is that the fact that the, all these platforms are owned by private companies and I don't see why this pay to play payola problem in which has like you know reared its ugly head like every other decade you know since the beginning of radio why that something similar wouldn't begin to happen you know on a platform like SoundCloud or Spotify or Instagram at some point the algorithms or whatever you want to call it, like the hand selection wouldn't start like tilting towards an artist who like wants more views or whatever in a way that favors them. And I guess in a way you already do have it in a legal way where, you know, you could go ahead and like pay for advertisements. So like, you know, when I'm flipping through my feed, you know, a feed, you know, if I'm like been shopping for shoes, all of a sudden all these like ad, you know, targeted ads are coming up about shoes. You can buy views. Yeah. You can buy views as well. Um, but I don't know. It just, it just seems like why, why wouldn't it like, you know, what's stopping, you know, a sort of pay to play model and maybe it's already happened like on a platform like SoundCloud. And once again, going back to this problem, we're like, you know, it doesn't really matter necessarily how much talent you have, or that only goes so far. And it really matters like how deep your wallets are. I mean, yeah. Uh, how it really matters how deep your pockets are. Uh, no. Um, I mean, I think that's true. I think to a certain extent, like I don't want to. I don't want to like be here like mythologizing the good old days when like the white radio DJs got songwriting credits on Chuck Berry songs um, or Little Richard songs because I mean that's like who you had to pay. I mean for me, I what think... I'm more asking is there a more organic or authentic way in which an artist who comes from meager background can like go ahead and find their way 
into the charts and some sort of sustainable career without having to like pay for play. And I mean, we still see it, right? We were just talking about future earlier. I mean, Takashi, Takashi, I think is an interesting example. I mean, there's some good reporting on like, he was this like Bushwick. He worked at like a sandwich, like a, a bodega in Bushwick. And he just got really good at starting shit online and was like very, very good at social media and kind of was like, kids knew him and then he started rapping and then it kind of blew up and you know i guess it's ever evolving though and it kind of comes back to like we'll see what happens because even back then i mean you know what instagram was like three or four years ago or what soundcloud was like three or four years ago when say an artist like takashi 69 or an artist like marshmallow like quote unquote made a name for themselves those platforms have changed since and they're continually trying to find ways to mo- people be people who run these platforms are continually trying to find ways to monetize this. You know, SoundCloud now knows that it can be this this starter platform for like launching careers. You know, we've heard it before. You know, Billie Eilish, Lana Del Rey. You know, all these people they've all got their start. SoundCloud, SoundCloud, SoundCloud. So like, SoundCloud is aware of this. So why and you know and so obviously they're gonna pivot and shift to not only encourage people to like pay for like you know the subscription to put as many songs as you want or whatever but like once again like maybe start offering billy eilish already exists billy eilish while an incredibly talented artist um like had a is connected to like la talent agency stuff it's like it's it's organic but within yeah, no, but I mean, reason. that even goes, that goes back to, but that, that, that just coincides with my point and the fact that like, it always, I'm always a little bit skeptical when I hear like an artist, like, you know, oh, they posted a song on SoundCloud. Next thing you know, they woke up the next day and had 6 million views and like a red light management person is like knocking on their door with a contra- a six figure contract. I'm like, really? Is that really how that happens? And like, yeah, when you actually start to investigate some of this stuff, like Billie Eilish comes from like a very like Hollywood family and her brother was like an up and coming like songwriter producer you know so yeah and that's usually what you find out is that it's actually much more complicated but nonetheless i'm just curious like you know my my main point is basically this is that if you are an up-and-coming artist it's not that you can't make it but even if you are on these platforms these platforms are privately owned and their main goal is to make money as a company which makes sense but once again you run into this problem that if you have the money that's an inevitably going to help you along the way and this and that's just an extension of this like payola scheme i mean i also think that with these this is a kind of a side point i mean i also think that like some of this is like you just run the program enough times right it's like how many kids from bushwick dyed their hair and tried to make rap videos and how many of them are takashi 69 yeah like one you, you yeah exactly right so in some ways for the music industry, it works out great, right? Because you've got this semi-organic filtering system for these areas. It filters a couple people to the top. They're pulled out of really quickly. So it's not like they're gigging for years and learning how the music industry works. It's like all of a sudden they have a huge viral hit and they don't know in a lot of cases what they're doing. I mean, um, it's one of the interesting things about Lizzo, right? Where like Lizzo was a sudden overnight sensation, but had been grinding for years and so knew how to do stuff. Right. And that education is is real. Right. But yeah, and it also it also creates this sort of like you know mystique or myth, which is like completely wrapped up in the American version of capitalism and all this myth, which is like pull yourself up from the bootstraps. You work hard enough, you're gonna get it. Somebody sees Takashi Six Nine working at like a subway, and then all of a sudden like getting famous. Like you said, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other bushwick kids or wherever in brooklyn dyeing their hair trying to do the same thing and just spending all their money and time and not getting anywhere does that mean they shouldn't do it i don't know but just i guess be real like realize that like you know the 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 cards are stacked against him and and i think that actually is a really good way i think a similar point really gets at why people care about the charts and why Takashi's accusations were so heartfelt, right? There is this idea that like if you get if you work really hard, you can get ahead in America. And the flip side of that idea is that in a marketplace society, working hard and getting ahead is reflected in not just material success, but in, in many ways like business success. And there's like a long history in American in American life and American thought of 
what uh, some people have termed like a consumer democracy, right? It's this idea that not only that you vote with your dollars, right? That in some ways, like your civic participation in American life, just like voting for president, is also like voting where you spend your money and voting how you consume. And that those two things got really interlinked, I would say early in the 20th century, and they haven't really stopped being interlinked since. So you get things like, you know, George Bush after 9-11 going out and telling people like, go out and buy. That's what you can do for America. Yeah, go like shopping. As, as a citizen. And I, I feel like it sounds, it might sound silly, but I do think that the charts are in some ways, the reason people care about them is, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them I think is that there's this idea that like, at some level, it's like they reflect or they are supposed to reflect the the will and the taste and the belief in the consumers. That there's the idea that there's like a democracy of listeners out there and that their will should be expressed. And that therefore, not only is the most popular record like the one that sold the most, but in some ways it's the one that's been voted for the most, right? Like it's the best because it won the money election <laughs> this week. And that's why people get caught up in it. It's not just that, like, I feel like it's like, they don't just want their artists, their favorite artists to be happy or like have good careers or like just make it on through. It's like, they want their artists to win the election and be held up like as the champion um, in this very like uh, po semi-political way. And so I feel like that's part of why Takashi's accusations created a stir because everyone knows that like no the system doesn't quite work that way but if people believe that a couple of big companies weren't just like controlling the strings in the music industry but every because everyone knows that but actually dictating the charts they would cease to be meaningful at some pretty significant way and that i think people would perceive that to be a loss to the music industry it's the same way why we still have a charts right we shouldn't have a charts we should have many charts that calculate many different things but people want there to be a chart well no to go i mean it, yeah and it also goes back to the very beginning of this episode and talking about you know my my di the differences i was expounding upon between like jay-z and future where it's competition right like that's what this chart is. It's a race for first. I mean, it, it it just it basically mirrors a sports bracket, right? Like who's in first, who's in last, who's not who's not on it anymore. You know, it's and and I think that that's what's kind of like the interesting difference. I think at least publicly, when we were talking about future and Jay Z, is that like you know, Jay Z comes from this like very like I like fight. I need to like diss. I need to like crawl my way to the front like competitive way and like future's response is like well we both came from the same place we should be building each other up like more of like a communal like uh standpoint and i think that like these charts though are just a reflection i think of like the sort of american psyche that we just we need to know what's number one we need a competition of sorts and that sort of is a competition and i mean you could even say takashi 69's complaint in and of itself why do you care you got your money you got your streams you just want that badge, that badge. You want that number one, but it doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't actually. Well, maybe you know we can. We've been arguing about whether or not it means anything, but like actually, like monetarily, like and from a material sense, from a popularity sense, he's still popular. He's still making his money, but he still wants that number one, you know. And so now you have like the injection of competition, and this is nothing new. But you have the, the injection of like competition into music, and it's such a part of like you know the American fabric. Yeah, I mean, I I also think. I think that's totally right. I mean, I also think there's something weird about pop music in specific that makes charts more important. Like, let's compare them to, to, to movies for a second, right? Like, I fundamentally, at some level, care about the pop charts and do not care about how much money a movie took in. I don't care what the number one movie in America is. Or like the box office or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people yeah. caring about the box office has always been very strange to me. And I think partially that's because you see a movie in a movie theater with other people, right? There's an audience implied. And with a record in some ways, like with, with, a, with a piece of recorded music, there is this funny thing where it's like, there's so much music out there being produced. And in some ways, Part of popular music is about 
sharing with other people, right? There's a communal experience. Even if you're listening on headphones by yourself, I think there's an implied communal experience to a lot of music or all music maybe. And um, that some of that music, the value of that communal experience comes from the belief that other people are listening to it. In some ways, the value of a piece of popular music that we know doesn't have any implicit value in and of itself because you could rec re you can make it a, an infinite number of copies. There is no value in any copy of a song. And so some of the value of the song, if you're into this, is like it's history, but some of the value of the song is like how it's listened to and how popular it is. So what makes the only thing difference, the only difference between a hit record, which is incredibly valuable as a commodity, and the biggest flop is that other people listen to it. You can't tell if you're holding a record or listening to, to the, looking at the file. They're exactly identical in every way. Right, right. That's interesting. I think also it's kind of an extension of, I guess what I'll call the sort of like neoliberal obsession that has been completely blown up in the last like decade with like numbers and charts and like polls and things like that, where as you're saying, like inherently the song you can't tell like what the song or the record or reading out on your Spotify playlist, whether or not it's a flop or not, it's not inherent in the thing itself. But like, if we have these charts and we have these numbers and we see like, and we assign this like value to it, then it's like suddenly now it's conveying to me like information that I'm supposed to take as like important and like valuable. And then like, I can go ahead and take that information and then like use it as fact for like why something is and like why something isn't and then create like a whole you know stance or article or opinion about that chart number you know like whatever it is and i think that, that you know and that that's what this, this billboard stuff is it's kind of just an extension of that you know and i i think that you know the the sort of the sort of i don't know the the existential question is really just like you know why do people like still give that value and like i don't know i think it just still has something to do with the fact that like you know we sure love a comp uh we sure love a competition in america yeah i mean if you think about the absurdity of it i mean the thing is it's like you know it's music it's art it's, it's just it's just taste you know and it, and yet, it, yet i too find and maybe I'm going to I'm going to maybe even like sort of like unravel some of the arguments I've been making. But I, too, find interest am interested in what's on rap caviar and like what's in the hip hop charts and like what's in the pop charts. And I will go and like check in periodically, even though that's like not the kind of music that maybe like I listen to on a regular basis. And so why am I doing that? Because I'm interested in what, quote unquote, the people are listening to and like want to be like a part of that, which then is like what an extension of like this idea of community, even though like is a community in a weird way it is because then like you know i've worked as a bartender and if i know what like the hot summer single is and like who the artist is i can then have a conversation with somebody about that and that's creating you know community but it, it you know it's interesting it, it for me it's like it like doesn't necessarily inherently matter whether or not or dictate like or say anything about whether or not like I'll like the song or a song is good or if it's a flop or a hit, but because the charts exist, it inevitably gives birth to this sort of this whole conversation and this whole culture. And inevitably like in the end, like I kind of want to like be a, at least a little bit in the know and a part of it. Yeah. And, and, and it constructs it, right? Like I, I do the same thing. I listen to, to rap caviar, like, you know, once or twice a month, but it, it's crazy because it's also like that means that what the charts are at some level creating, and maybe that kind of gets to why it matters, right? The charts are creating what people are listening to. Right. They still do. That's not even with all like the decentered listening, even with all the YouTube, all the stuff, they still, right? Like what's at the top of the charts means you're more likely to be on rap caviar, which means you're more likely to get listened to. And it does create that audience, more or less. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing that I sometimes, like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is just, like, my, like, elitist, like, you know, bohemian ideas or whatever. <laughs> but I just, I sort of always balk at anything that sort of creates this, like, 
homogeny of like culture and then there's like this like tyranny of the charts and of like the spotify playlist and they like are now dictating like what everybody listens to i know what everybody talks about and then what everybody writes about and there's just like so much outside of that that is like just as worthy if not more of a listen or a look but maybe that's just me being you know a curmudgeon i I mean at the same time though right like the feeling that you get when I Want You Back by the Jackson 5 drops at, like, the right point of a wedding. <laughs> um, As somebody and, who's worked weddings, like, not to interrupt, but somebody who's worked weddings, like, a lot of weddings, I, you know, you should have mentioned an MJ song instead of the Jackson 5, but it's fine. MJ always gets people on the dance floor. Sure. Always. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, in, even oh, with his complicated legacy. Well, I, want it ba- I Want You Back is... A, a, one of the greatest pop songs of all. I want you back at a wedding, though. Come on, man. Think about the message of that. Just kidding, <laughs> I, dude. It's better than blurred lines. That's when you rena- it, It's when you renew the vows. It's better. The, the vows. Better than blurred lines. Oh, God, yeah. Don't get me started. Yeah, no, no. But like, but but like, um, the kinds of connections that great pop music can do, um, and the kinds of community and the kinds of memories and its role in people's lives. All of which are real, despite the fact that they're created by these big companies. They are also real, and people do spend like their lives. It's like I met my husband to that song. I remember being sixteen and driving with my buddies and listening to that song. Whatever, right? Like people's lives and the meaning that gives their lives value um, are created in relationship to these songs, and these songs have value because they're shared by a large group of people. And they're not the only way that songs can get value. Um, but I do think that like there is something amazing that is that that's part of pop music. And and the weird thing is that it's always only enabled, and that's one of the like the central mysteries of it, right? It's only enabled by this in this ridiculous, terrible system that just extracts value from things and makes these decisions. And it never existed before it. Like it's part like it's a devil's bargain in my mind increasingly i feel like that you only get um you only get uh uh like off the wall if you have major labels and that's for good and for ill but like a world that doesn't have like uh off the wall or doesn't have um i want you back is a different like less glorious world maybe yeah I no i don't know i think you just have a replacement and you have some other song that like you know never made it or whatever but i don't know I, I i think i take i i'm i'm not as willing to go along in that with you i I hear what you're saying and i think that you are like correct in what you're saying but i still have i take issue with the fact that these like gigantic companies who's are like you know greasing the palms of like their you know of their their fellow corporate you know suits and like dictating like what I listen to as something that you know I'm that I'm just always gonna balk at and like want to resist. But I mean, yeah, I've been there. I've been to those weddings and I've seen like a major pop song come on that was like four or five years old and see everybody get to the dance floor and sing along with it and like, yeah, in of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and the song itself might be actually catchy as fuck. <laughs> you know, and I might even like it. You know. But this, I don't have to like the way that it came into my ears or why it's being played at that wedding. And I don't think I ever will. Well, guys, I think uh, that's it for this week. We are Money for Nothing. I'm Sam Backer. I'm here with Saxon Baird. Uh, we've got uh, theme music by Bird Language. Um, and we'll catch you next time.